I think Erdogan has kind of backed into a bit more of a nationalist corner. He's less neo-Ottoman and more just Turkish nationalist these days. It is the week of May 3rd, and welcome to episode 78 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the political disagreements between the left and right on issues of foreign policy and national security. Today we have Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director, and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Les Munson, NSI senior fellow and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, first-time guest Max Hoffman, director of national security and international policy at the Center for American Progress, and I'm Grant Haver, NSI policy program manager. So big news in U.S.-Turkey relations last week. President Biden announced that he will officially recognize the Armenian genocide from early in the 20th century. Jody, I want to throw this one to you first. Congress, of course, recognized the Armenian genocide a couple of years ago, much to President Trump's chagrin. Not much really changed between the U.S. and Turkey. So what's the real significance of this? Does this really matter in the real world? It's not going to change the fact that we're an ally with Turkey. It's not going to change the situation on the ground in any of the places we're about to talk about, Syria, Libya, the Eastern Med, what have you. So so why does this even matter? Right. Thanks, Les. I, I think it matters a great deal. Uh, and Congress led the way on this, as it frequently does in, in human rights matters. I think it's important to remind our listeners and viewers what happened and why it's important. So the short version is, starting in April 1915, the Ottoman authorities arrested, deported, massacred, or marched to their deaths uh, 1.5 million Armenians. And what distinguishes the crime of, of genocide is intent. And uh, it's the intent to destroy, uh, in whole or part, a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. In this case, the Ottoman Turks intending to destroy their Armenian people. Uh, and the United States and 151 other states, including uh, agreed on this definition in the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. They also agreed that states have an obligation to recognize, prevent, and punish the crime of genocide. Right? This was literally the first human rights treaty adopted by the UN General Assembly in, in 1948. But more to the point, the recognition now, right, has, of course, historical consequence, but it also has contemporary importance in the context of Turkey and Armenia, but also with respect to current events in China in, in Xinjiang province. Recognizing genocide has political impact, but its recognition is based in fact, uh, and it's really critical that, to, to know that we can, you know, recognize the facts and recognize the truth. Well, we can't recognize Turkey's actions in Armenia more than 100 years ago, what would that suggest about the role of politics in making these determinations now, right? So I think that the Biden foreign policy team is consistent here. Their more muscular posture on democracy and human rights, including the recent determination that the CCP is carrying out genocide against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And then lastly, like it matters because Turkey's efforts are ongoing. Turkey and Armenia are more than just adversaries. Turkey, in cooperation with Azeris, maintains a blockade on Armenia that has left the country landlocked, and of course, with Iran to its south and, and, and Russia to its north. So, you know, these, these things may seem like they're, you know, historical, you know, it is a historical event, but with modern day consequences, both for the Armenians as well as for our ability to reconcile fast and call genocide genocide and prevent it where we can. Jody, wouldn't it be a little more significant on the ground if the Biden administration tried to do something more concrete about Turkey buying missiles from Russia and other and other weapon systems? I think we can we can play with both hands here, right? So the S-400, for example, is really important, but a wholly different issue, right? 
you know, this political moment, you know, maybe a low point in U.S.-Turkish relations may have simplified recognizing their meaning genocide, but the facts are the facts. And so I was glad to see that happen. You know, uh, could we be doing more on Turkey? Like, I think we have, right? So the last administration, to be fair, imposed sanctions on Turkey in December 2020 for purchasing the S-400 system. And that's a decision that the Biden administration has stood by, right? So they announced in early April that they were going to go forward with sanctions on Turkey's military industrial sector based on its receipt of the S-400 system, right? This is a system designed to shoot down U.S. and allied aircraft. So it's, it's rather, it's rather significant. So um, I think we're, we're actually have found the appropriate response here, if you will. Um, whether or not there's more to come after this, I don't know. I don't think anybody's trying to make the situation vis-a-vis in our relations with Turkey worse than they already are. But you know, we have to respond to the facts on the ground. Jamil, uh, Turkey is could not be more strategically located, right? It's connected to the Middle East. It's connected to Central Asia. It's connected to Europe. It was the big prize during the Cold War when NATO pulled the Turks over to the side of uh, the side of the good guys. That was a huge blow against the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Why are, have we suddenly become so much more cavalier about winning hearts and minds in Turkey? Well, I mean, look, it's no small thing to say that uh, the president of Turkey, President Erdogan, has uh, been something of a challenge for the United States. He has made Turkey uh, less of a NATO ally and more of a frenemy in many senses. Uh, They are uh, a member of NATO, and yet uh, they have purchased uh, S-400 missiles from uh, the Russians. Uh, They uh, understand uh, the U.S.'s strategic concerns and interests in the Syrian theater, and yet have seen appropriate to go it their own way. Um, including um, uh, coming after our close allies in the region, the Kurds. The Turks hold a critically important strategic position sitting between Europe and Asia, and obviously are are critically important. Would that it were the case that that Turkey were a better ally uh, to us in NATO and that the president were to foster a better course. Um, you know, he's also got his own challenges at home and has leaned forward against those in a way that uh, that is not helpful to the U.S. Uh, government's uh, philosophy in the region. And so, um, you know, I look, I think Turkey itself has made itself a challenge to the United States. We have sought to, for decades, uh, sought to keep Turkey uh, in our camp uh, and worked with them and provided them weapons and support and uh, assistance. And you know, President Erdogan has uh, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, bollocks a lot of that up. And so, uh, look, could we do more uh, to get Turkey on side? I think we've done all that we can. I think that it's now Turkey's opportunity to respond and reciprocate. Um, look, we have important strategic relationships. We have an air base there, and it remains a critically important country. We are committed. I think the United States is committed to uh, the Turkish people and to their aspirations um, and, and to uh, making them a successful partner in the NATO alliance. Uh, but that requires a government that is willing to work with us. So you would not be in favor of kicking Turkey out of NATO, for example? No, I think that would be a mistake. I think that Turkey has done a lot of things that run counter to its uh, relationship with NATO and to remaining in NATO. Um, I think it is better for us to keep them in, bring them in, get them to stay. At the same time, um, if they continue to behave in this manner, I think we have to be able to take serious serious action. Um, and maybe that means uh, considering removing them from NATO. But I think that that should be a last step. Uh, look, it's not that they haven't done uh, enough to warrant it. Uh, I think it would be a mistake at this time to do that, but I do think that we need to speak to them in a tough manner, and uh, they need to respond knowing that we are serious about that. Max, first of all, welcome to Fault Lines. 
Great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. You're more of a specialist on Turkey than the rest of us, and we're kind of saving the best for last year, perhaps. Talk to us about what's the position of Erdogan in Turkey right now. The coronavirus seems to be running rampant in Turkey, maybe not quite as bad as places like India or Brazil, but there's been some real damage to the economy. They're not really rolling out a good vaccine plan. Uh, he seems politically weaker. What's the view on the ground in Turkey about Erdogan's uh, administration? Yeah, Erdogan is at a real low ebb. I mean, he has driven the formal structure of Turkish politics and governance towards extreme centralization in the office of the presidency, which which he holds, of course. And so he has consolidated power to a remarkable extent, really uh, cut down rivals, repressed uh, political dissent. And despite that, his hold is very brittle. He's losing ground domestically and has been for, for more than a year under the pressure of a really a cratering economy, ongoing refugee crisis. There's tremendous anger in Turkey about the 3.6 million Syrian refugees in the country and also just sort of long-term incumbency. Um, So young Turkish conservatives, some right-wing nationalists, really crucial uh, constituencies for Erdogan are unhappy with the state of the country and are increasingly sort of considering potential alternatives. You know, according to April polls, three of his main rivals all now lead him in in the polls. Um, You know, that's pretty unprecedented. I've tracked polls in Turkey and done focus groups and polling ourselves at CAP and um, have never really seen anything quite like this. And for young voters who are now, you know, a massive constituency, they've they've come of political age entirely under AKP rule with President Erdogan dominating public life. And, you know, this group, though, far from becoming some kind of generation Erdogan, they're they're unhappy. You know, they, it's hard to get a job. They don't like the repression. They feel the country's on the wrong track. And while they're still sort of respectful of Erdogan's legacy and building Turkey up and building up living standards early in his term, um, they're not excited by him. And many now see him as sort of the the best of the bad options. Um, And so many maybe struggle to imagine alternatives because their entire political consciousness, you know, he has been the dominant figure, but he, he now embodies that political establishment that has really failed young Turks. And so, you know, that's really important heading into the next scheduled election in 2023. Erdogan can call an early election, but 18 to 29 year olds are now the largest demographic voting bloc in Turkey. And each year, millions more join the voting ranks. And so, you know, he's really struggling. And you see this just slow erosion of key constituencies for him. And uh, it's unclear, you know, what he'll do. He's, he's kind of a political Houdini, uh, historically, and what he'll do to try to squeeze out of the situation. Max, if he's, uh, as some reports have indicated, kind of talking about reviving the concept of the Ottoman Empire as a way to distract from his own political weak spots, and we start to see more, even more adventurism abroad from Turkey, how should the Biden administration respond? Well, it's a good question. I, you know, the the concept of neo-Ottomanism is somewhat contested. Certainly, Erdogan has sought to sort of claim the mantle of that Ottoman legacy at home and in the messaging and the symbols that he uses. Uh, And he has also sought to position himself as a leader of the Muslim world. Uh, You know, you saw this particularly in the early early months and years of the Arab Spring, uh, the Arab uprisings. Uh, That has kind of met against this counter-revolutionary response from powers like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and Egypt and others um, across the region. And so I think Erdogan has kind of backed into a bit more of a nationalist corner. He's less neo-Ottoman and more just Turkish nationalist these days. Um, But he has... Since particularly the failed coup attempt in 2016, he has been pretty untethered and he has increasingly pursued 
his ambition to redraw the regional order to Turkey's advantage, to establish Turkey under him, his, his role as a, as a major power in its own right, more independent of the West. Uh, he's increasingly used hard power and, you know, and, and military interventions to try to make those, those claims. And so he's grabbed a lot over the last five years, right? The, the, the Biden team comes in and a lot of the sort of that revanchism has already taken place. Um, he's claimed effective control of between 1,600 and 2,000 square miles of Syria. You know, deployments in Qatar, deployments in Libya, Nagorno-Karabakh, uh, Jody uh, alluded to earlier, um, and then these aggressive maritime claims in the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, so, you know, that revanchism is a fact. It's not a it's not a theory. And if he goes further, I think, you know, the, the Biden team, it's incumbent upon them to, to signal. I hesitate to use the word red lines, given where we're going later in this episode, but to signal red lines in advance and say that, you know, they're going to be serious economic consequences. There'll be serious consequences within NATO if you you know, for example, militarily press claims against Greece or Cyprus, you know, these are these are really big uh, tripwires. And with and just hope that, you know, Erdogan understands that and he understands the vulnerability that, that Turkey's economy uh, poses. Jody, what, what's your sense of uh, the Biden administration's willingness to provide real consequences for Turkish adventurism? Should they turn up the heat a little bit? Listen, I think it's a, it's a tricky situation as Max has indicated, right? Like we're looking at a wholly different Turkey today than we were you know, than we were 20 years ago. And I don't think we've yet figured out exactly uh, how to manage them, particularly how to manage them as a NATO ally. Like my, my sense of it is, is that the Biden administration is doing its darndest to like signal to the Turks how unhappy they are with any variety of things, right? Like with how they're acting uh, internally, uh, you know, crackdown on internal uh, dissent, uh, how they are acting in the Eastern Med, right? And ambitions that they're pursuing there that affect, you know, uh, Greece and, and Cyprus, um, as well as, you know, kind of their lack of engagement support for, you know, progress on, on other issues in, in the region, Syria and, um, and Armenia and so on. So, uh, I, I, listen, I think we're doing what we can to like let them know that like we want to work through this, but you've got to work through it. And I, but I think they're aware that the Turks may not get there, right? That we may be finally in a posture where the United States is going to have to take action. I won't say red line. Uh, I think this administration will be lucky to lay down red lines, but it doesn't mean that they're not looking at what what actions they may have to take that are you know well beyond the sanctions that have occurred this area related to that 400. Jamil, what do you think about how the Biden administration has handled this so far vis-a-vis the way Trump handled it? You know, we, we all, all of us, I think, were at least a little bit critical, so some of us very critical of the way Trump conducted himself with autocrats around the world. Erdogan certainly fits into that category in a lot of ways. This attempt to build a personal relationship with schmooze and charm and talking about building resorts on coasts and things like that. Was that so crazy given the dilemma that we find ourselves in with Turkey? Maybe, maybe that approach would produce better results than a more nuanced focus on things that happened 100 years ago and perhaps drawing red lines or perhaps not drawing red lines, should we, are we looking back a little more favorably on the previous administration's approach? No. Um, the, uh, <laughs> the, look, <laughs> President, Trump, uh, President Trump uh, sought, you know, to engage with a number of uh, sort of autocrats in this way, uh, all, of, all of which uh, went for not. Uh, you look at his relationship with Vladimir Putin, uh, which he sought to exploit for U.S. gain, uh, failed. We look at his relationship with uh, with uh, Kim Jong Un uh, in, in North Korea. Fail. 
Look at his relationship with uh, with President Erdogan in Turkey, fail. So the attempt to uh, work with autocrats and, and butter them up with uh, I love you, you love me, sort of that Barney kind of relationship um, uh, was not a successful one. Uh, we might have thought, uh, you know, at four years ago that maybe maybe it might work. Uh, and uh, and for a while, you know, it looked like maybe, uh, you know, we got these memes with Kim Jong-un and, and maybe there was some opportunity, although I think everyone that watched that knew uh, that the president was actually being taken advantage of not taking advantage of Kim Jong-un as he thought. Um, and the same thing happened with Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin took advantage of President Trump, not the other way around. And with President Erdogan, again, uh, all we saw was a decaying of American strategic interests with respect to the Kurds or their, their situation with Russia or their position in NATO. Nothing got better about the Turk uh, the Turkish-US uh, relationship uh, during the Trump administration and the, uh, and the charm offensive uh, with autocrats that President uh, Trump sought to mount. Um, and so uh, I don't think we're looking back more favorably. Look, you, there, there could be a lot of criticisms or, or, or plaudits for the Biden approach, whatever, whichever side of that you're on. But I don't think anybody's looking back, regardless of what they think about the Biden approach, saying, you know, if only we went back to the Trump approach, because that was really working. Max, let me put a similar question to you. I would say the Obama administration had highly limited success in this region. Syria turned into a disaster on their watch. The attempted rebalancing through the Iran nuclear deal failed, or at least is failing. Shouldn't President Biden be thinking differently? Should he have a different approach to the region than President Obama did? He's obviously going to have a different approach than President Trump did. But is there is there another way here to engage constructively in the region that will result in better things happening? Well, that's a big and difficult question for sure. I mean, I think that first, specifically on Turkey, certainly the Biden team very purposefully signaled in these first four four or so months, three and a half months, whatever it's been, um, that the highly personalized, chaotic presidential dealings that characterize the Trump-Erdogan relationship were a thing of the past. That's why they delayed the presidential call as long as they did and had these carefully stage-managed sort of senior contacts leading up to it. And the signal when they spoke, and I think that will probably remain the signal, is the ball is in your court, as as Jody and Jamil both said. You know, if we have these major issues, S-400, Syria, uh, the Eastern Med, revanchism, all of these things, and we would like to manage them at a minimum and resolve them if possible, but the ball's in your court. You've got to, you've got to give something. We've gone as far as we can go. On the wider regional picture, it seems to me that, you know, first to, to give Obama a, a bit of credit, he, the 2011, the Arab uprisings, and, you know, he inherited an Iraq uh, that was somewhat stabilized, but still a, a major issue. And, and then the region just sort of blew up on him. And I think that there's a lot of criticism about how uh, that process was managed. But the reality is that the U.S. probably couldn't have decisive influence on all of these conflicts, on all of these destabilized regimes sort of all happening at once. Um, and the Iran deal, I mean, I think that it was never fully tried. You know, the basic bet that if we craft this deal, strike this deal um, and buy some time on the nuclear file, there's a chance that Iran develops in a more promising direction. Um that was not sort of given any time to succeed because Trump came in and, and, and sabotaged it intentionally, whether, you know, whatever people's views are on that. Um, so anyway, just to sort of <laughs> give him a little credit. I think the Biden team now is just focused uh, the pretty modest goals in the region, it seems to me. Try to put Humpty Dumpty back together again, try to stabilize or de-escalate some of these conflicts. You see that in Yemen, you know, efforts to just kind of grab people by the scruff of the neck and pull them apart. Uh, that doesn't mean that Yemen or Syria or any of these or Libya are going to, you know, be stable or immediately transition to democracy. I think it's just an effort to kind of lower the bloodshed, because what happened, in my view, um, 
over the last four years was that a number of regional actors, certainly including Turkey, but I would also include Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates in that uh, camp, saw Trump's manifest disinterest in the region and thought, I mean, for some, it was an opportunity. I think for Erdogan, he saw it as an opportunity to assert aggressive claims. For some, they saw it as a threat. Perhaps the Saudis and the Emiratis felt that, you know, threatened by the sort of U.S. disinterest in it. But all of those powers kind of started throwing their weight around, again, increasingly in military terms. There are some sort of secular trends that contributed to that, the, the rise of drone, uh, you know, drone technology, the really almost ubiquitous um, access to arms and drones and all of these things meant that the, the threshold for conflict and the pain around these conflicts was lowered for these regional powers. So anyway, I, I don't think it's fair to sort of assign all of the blame, but as to the Biden policy, I think it's just to try to stop some of the bloodshed. While their attention is frankly elsewhere, you know, clearly the, the main focus is on China and on this broader strategic competition. Jamil. Well, I do worry, though, um, that, you know, I, I, I don't disagree with Max on anything he said about about uh, President Trump and, and his disinterest uh, in, in, in these in these issues in the region. Um, but look, I mean, this is now coming on 12 years of disinterest in the region and going on now uh, year 13, maybe year you know, and, and potentially year, uh, you know, year year 16 uh, in the future. Uh, because the last two presidents and now now President Biden have made clear it is time to get out of Dodge, pivot to Asia, right? Make the shift and, you know, leave it all behind. I mean, to the point of, uh, as we discussed on our last podcast, uh, this precipitous departure from Afghanistan uh, by President uh, Biden, um, you know, and, and the abandoning of a conditions-based approach to uh, to exiting uh, uh, that conflict. And so, you know, as, as I said last time, I predict we'll be back in Afghanistan before the end of this administration. Um, and this continued effort to bail on the Middle East and to bail on uh, our allies in Europe um, and and to, to really pivot our, our look, no, nobody doubts uh, that we're in a critical situation with uh, China and that we've got to focus our attention there. Uh, but taking our eye off the ball on counterterrorism efforts, taking our, bio, our, our eye off the ball on uh, some of these regional conflicts where we have longstanding allies. And frankly, abandoning our longstanding allies uh, in favor of new partners um, or or chimeric visions of peace and stability in the world um, is 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 a mistake. We saw eight years of that mistake made by President Obama. I'm hoping this administration doesn't make the same errors. Well, Jamil, I think that's like a, a massive overstatement to suggest that the United States is walking away from its, you know, friends and allies uh, in this region. I did want to just say this, though. Like, it is, it is a life lesson for all presidents that you cannot sway autocrats through constructive engagement, right? Like, us extending our hand does not mean that they will unclench their fist. If only because their goals are self-interested frequently, uh, having to do with their own power and kind of vision of themselves in the world, and because their tenures will extend the, the terms of, of the U.S. presidency. So like, I think we always need to step back and be thoughtful about what we can actually do. Like, what can we do to actually make a difference? How do we protect the U.S.? interest, both political and economic interest internationally, uh, and not and not pretend that we are capable of wholly, you know, changing the perspective of uh, of an autocrat or a nationalist or Erdogan, Assad, Putin, Ayatollah, because, because we reached out, right? Like we need to have a square vision of what we need to accomplish and what our priorities are. Like I don't see a pivot toward focusing on uh, China's influence activities is a meaning that we're stepping away from our interests in the Middle East, right? But like we do have, we do have to prioritize and we do have to be realistic about what we can accomplish. Before I uh, 
throw the baton over to Grant for the second half of this discussion. Uh, I, I do want to say I agree with Jamil that while the modes of conduct between President Trump and President Obama were very different, the overall theme of U.S. withdrawal was very much a reality in the region. Everyone sensed it. It had a, a very real impact on the ground in Iraq with the rise of the Islamic State. I suspect a similar phenomenon under President Biden is going to result in bad things happening in Afghanistan once we've pulled out, and maybe even as we're pulling out, that's starting to look bleaker and bleaker almost by the hour. So I do think it's fair to note that while we may have disagreements with, with the modalities of the last administration, the fundamental phenomenon of U.S. withdrawal from the region is the real issue. And it's not something you can pivot away from and just look at other priorities. We can't challenge China without you. Europe being with us. We can't have a Europe that's being destabilized by total chaos in the Middle East and North Africa. We, we don't have an option. We have to be in those places to accomplish our global goals. And by the way, I refuse to accept the idea that, that the U.S. can't walk and chew gum at the same time, right? I mean, you know, this consistent view uh, by President Obama that we had to pivot, right? The idea by Donald Trump that we had to bring everybody home and the idea continually fomented by President Biden. Now, we have to end endless wars are ridiculous. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can assert our interests in the Middle East and Europe and still deal with China as a major threat. And frankly, as I said, it's building our relationship with the Europeans and really cementing that and not just sort of kowtowing to them, though, in that process uh, that's going to make us more effective against China. Max, last word before we throw it, throw it to Grant. Did, did, did somebody suggest that the Europeans had asked us to do all of these things, right? Are the Europeans asking us to stay? No, but uh, we're... But oh, they're doing Max, so no, like, I'm a little, no, Joey, I'm a little Max, confused here about how Max, we're abandoning yeah. our European, how Biden all yeah. people versus Donald Trump is abandoning our well, right. I, no, no, I said, I said, I said, I said Obama abandoned them. In fairness, in fairness to me, it was, you know, the chaos in Syria ended up in Germany, in addition to Turkey, right? This is this destabilized a lot more places than just Turkey. I think I think the, the Syria criticism is fair. And I know that we're going to we're going to talk more about that uh, shortly. But I think that the idea that, you know, Jamil, as you said, I, of course, the US can walk into gum and it continues to do so. And it frankly did so sort of throughout this period, if not terribly well, uh, you know, when we talk about the, there was a perception of withdrawal from the Middle East, but, you know, the actual changes in allocations was really going from a massive ground presence in Iraq to a buy with and through approach in Iraq. And other than that, very, very little changed. Um, and, you know, the chaos in Syria is a fair criticism and we'll, and we'll get to that. But the idea that the U.S. sort of trying to right size its approach in the Middle East and get away from large scale counterinsurgency to this by with and through, you know, CT focus, which brings downsides, I fully admit, um, is somehow abandoning the region or its interests is, is not right. And then, uh, you know, as Johnny was saying, I think the idea that either Obama or Biden is somehow abandoning European partners by, again, trying to right size that that deployment is not right. And is kind of outrageous against what Trump did to the European relationship uh, relationships, I should say. Uh, all right, Grant, it is time for you to assume your second half hosting duties. Take it away. I appreciate it, Les. Uh, so since we've already zoomed out to talk about the region, let's really dig into Syria and Libya. You know, it's been 10 years since the Arab Spring and the beginning of hostilities in both Syria and Libya. Uh, in well, Syria, Charles Was it hostilities? Because according to the Obama administration, it wasn't hostilities in, in Libya. Regardless. Grant, don't take the bait. Don't take uh, the bait. Take the bait, Grant. 
in Syria, Bashar al-Assad seems poised to hold on to power, while in Libya, a tense ceasefire is holding between the government of National Accord and the Libyan National Army, head of elections slated at the end of this year. Uh, so let's just put the bottom line up front. What, if anything, can the United States do beyond its current work to promote stability and democracy in Libya and Syria? Let's start with the expert here, Max Hoffman. What do you think? Uh, well, I'm, I can't claim to be a full expert on Libya, um, but I think... In terms of what can be done, um, in Syria right now, the conflict has settled into a really tragic and um, painful stasis. And I think that the U.S. approach, again, has to be focused on de-escalation and provision of humanitarian support and just trying to alleviate as much humanitarian suffering as it can reasonably do. And the way to do that, uh, in my view, is is twofold. One is to try to stabilize the current contours of, of the conflict. So in the north, the it's essentially the U.S. has influence in the SDF, the Kurdish-controlled east, and stabilization efforts there should continue. The U.S. troop presence probably needs to come up a little bit to, you know, in the 1500 to 2000 range, back where it was at the end of Obama. And the effort there should be to hold the line against the regime and the Russians, and also to help the SDF continue to prosecute their campaign against uh, ISIS remnants and stabilize those efforts. The U.S. and and the international community can provide humanitarian access in those areas. That piece of the equation is really difficult, but sort of simple at a strategic level about what needs to happen. The big questions are then in the northwest of the country where Turkey holds, again, sort of 2,000 square miles of Syrian territory under Turkish de facto authority, and in Idlib province where, you know, millions of Syrian refugees displaced from other parts of Syria in many cases are, are protected by a thin perimeter of Turkish sort of nominal military presence. And then by Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, which is a listed terrorist organization, but is also the ground force sort of defending these areas from regime uh, campaign of annihilation. And there, you know, the deterrent effect is really in Turkey's hands and the international community can threaten threaten Russia and Iran and, and the Assad regime to the extent it can with, with economic consequences. Uh, if they go into Idlib to to um, close this, you know, to crush this last pocket. Um, but, you know, that's, I think, mainly down to Turkey staring down Assad and, and Russia. Um, and then beyond that, I think the international community has to do more to take refugees themselves. That includes the U.S. and Europe. Both need to do more taking Syrian refugees. Both need to increase the humanitarian support. In July, the U.N. cross-border mandate will likely be killed by a Russian veto at the Security Council. And the international community, really the West needs to be preparing in advance and setting up a cross-border humanitarian mechanism independent of the UN from Turkey into these areas because, you know, we have, I think it's four to six million Syrians who are in dire, dire uh, conditions and, you know, you'll have massive starvation and truly profound humanitarian suffering if, if we're not prepared for that. I think Syria, uh, Libya, sorry, briefly to fit in at the end. I mean, yeah, the U.S. needs to embrace the U.N. process and try to try to disentangle some of the internationalization that has occurred over the last five years in Libya. Um, you know, Turkey really did intervene and, and save the GNA from, from Haftar. And that was because neither the U.S. nor the Europeans were willing to do it. Um, and now it's stabilized. The country is roughly divided. All sides have, for the time being, put down their guns. That's good. The U.S. could potentially expand some of the name and shame uh, efforts uh, that that we've really aimed at Russia and their activities in Libya, but expand that to other actors who are who are not honoring the uh, arms embargo and potentially undermining the ceasefire. 
But, you know, again, it's kind of lower the temperature, try to pull some of these international actors out and, and really support the UN process. Les, what do you think? Is lowering the temperature and pushing the humanitarian aid the, the best way to move forward for these volatile conflicts? I think the idea of keeping over, open a humanitarian corridor into Syria is the de minimis standard. That is simply not acceptable uh, that we that we do not have, we the West do not have the ability to provide aid to the Syrian people who we've largely abandoned to total chaos. Uh, we need to be able to provide them aid. This is, this is a very significant test for the Biden administration diplomatically at the UN uh, and at the White House. They need to bring along European partners. We need to keep open uh, the one remaining UN authorized access point to Syria. Uh, and as Max points out, if that's not going to happen, then we, we better find a very robust alternative because it's simply not acceptable to leave those people uh, to the predations of Assad and the Russians and others. Uh, that would that would be piling catastrophe upon catastrophe. Uh, to to your larger question, Grant, um, it's that's not enough. That's the minimum, but it's not enough. We cannot allow chaos to fester. I think Max has very sensible ideas about keeping the lid on a boiling pot. Uh, we also need to find ways to take down the temperature. It means a more robust U.S. presence in the region, not a less robust U.S. presence in the region. We need to resist the temptation that the administration's already fallen for in Afghanistan. Uh, there's a big question looming about whether we're going to keep the very small number of troops we have in Syria there. They need to make the right decision about U.S. troops in Syria. If anything, we should be augmenting them. They are the most cost-effective fighting men and women in the world. They're able to change the balance of power in that country, and there's only a few hundred of them. Similar questions across the Sahel. Where, uh, where there's a variety of challenges, not just in Libya, but elsewhere, as we just saw in Chad, with the president of Chad, Idris Deby, uh being killed, his son taking over. Uh, there's, there's, these are potential chaos spots. The U.S. pulling out is not part of the answer. The U- U.S. needs to remain. We probably need to strengthen our position. So let's just do a, a quick follow up on that. You know, the New York Times highlighted how those uh, the rebels in Chad were actually training in Libya before they turned their sights back uh, under their home country. How concerned should we be that Libya and Syria will become a training ground for militias to destabilize the region? Well, they already are. <laughs> Right. That's exactly what's going on. We've seen this movie before. Back in the in the 90s, Al-Qaeda hit us in East Africa because that's where we were vulnerable. This similar phenomenon is going on here where there is chaos and lack of competent government. You're going to see the bad guys do well. It's happening in northern Mozambique, as we've discussed uh, in a different NSI podcast. Right. It's not just the Sahel. It's kind of all over the place. We don't really have the option to pick and choose where we're going to be. And I'm not saying we have to be in every place doing every single thing, but we need to be mindful of what is going on around the world in all of these hotspots. If we invest too much in one place, bad guys are going to pop up somewhere else. It's a little bit of whack-a-mole, which means we need to work with our partners to be present around the world. So so Jody, what do you think? What's the, the best way to play whack-a-mole in Syria and Libya without overcommitting? Listen, I, I think there's a Russia question that we, we need to talk about here. And I, I want to come at it from a little bit of a, of a different perspective. Like we kind of make the Russian boogeyman into this in, into this very big thing. And we need to remember, like Putin is always acting in his own, and maybe sometimes in Russia's uh, self-interest, but his ambition is to be seen as a global player, right? Because that helps him at home, right? Like detracting from his growing unpopularity 
and the massive street protests that are happening, you know, in cities across Russia, not just in Moscow, right? Like he's basically covering up Russia's poor long-term economic and demographic uh, situation, right? Like he is dealing in the appearance of power, which is really probably the best that he can do. Well, the United States and our allies are working on building alliances, trying to solve problems, help people. And, and people know the difference and countries know the difference. They don't trust him. They may take him in or they may use him as a wedge, but they don't actually trust him or, or believe in what the Russians are selling. So that leads me to like three things for us to focus on. One is to make sure that people understand the growing instability in Russia. Like this is something we need to continue to talk about. Like this is not a country to look up to. Second, you know, uh, Max pointed to this, like we need to be working through the international system in the UN, right? One, to call out Russia's actions in Syria, but also to, to address the dire humanitarian circumstances and as less as you suggested, like the bare minimum of a, of a humanitarian, of a humanitarian corridor. Uh, and third, uh, you know, kind of part and parcel of this is making clear to people like, uh, like the Turks and frankly, the Indians that, that if you're getting into bed with the Russians, you, that you have to understand there will be a response from the United States, right? Like it doesn't mean that we're gonna, you know, completely, it doesn't mean we're kicking Turkey uh, out of NATO or that we're not gonna be friendly with the Indians, but there are consequences and it will impact our relationship. So Jamil, what do you, what do you think about all this? Do you, do you think we need to be more engaged with special forces and drones? Do you think we need to be focused on the humanitarian angle? And how does the internationalization of these conflicts play into that? Yeah, well, look, I mean, Max and Jody earlier talked about um, the U.S. is sort of um, re-architecting of its posture in the region, right-sizing, uh, I think was the euphemism that, Matt specific, that Max specifically used uh, to describe it. But what you're seeing in Libya and what you're seeing in Syria is what happens when the U.S. right-sizes, right? When the U.S. abandons its own national interests, abandons the interests that it asserted early on, ensuring that there was democracy in Libya ensuring that the Syrian people were safe from chemical weapons, right? When America abandons its principles that it's laid out, this is what happens. Chaos ensues. There's consistent fighting. Uh, the Russians, as Jody pointed out, the Russians get, have gotten involved in a massive way. Places where the Russians were only at a nominal presence in Syria. Yes, they were the, the ultimate guarantors of the Assad regime, right? But they didn't have a significant military presence. They didn't have a significant military presence in Libya, even though they had long been, long been backers of 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 Gaddafi and his and his regime, right? The idea that uh, it's simply small ball moves when the U.S. right sizes its posture and and not not you know chaos does not ensue is exactly counter to what we've seen in Syria, in Libya, in the entire Middle East region. The rise of ISIS and its territorial caliphate is a direct result of the U.S. right sizing of its posture in Iraq. So this idea somehow that that it can be without consequences when the U.S. does these minor moves, right? It's something that is a lesson the Biden administration critically must learn from both the Obama and Trump administrations and not make the same errors. Unfortunately, it looks like the Biden administration, Afghanistan, is going to make has already made the same error. It's making the same error with Iran, and it is poised to make the same error in Syria, where it's considering reducing the forces instead of, as Max says correctly, augmenting those forces and are walking away from Libya. It's why we it is where it is. It's why the GNA has not has not been survived. Our sort of nascent you know, sometimes we're talking to Haftar, sometimes we're not. Posture with them is exactly why we're in this situation in Libya, too. When the U.S. does not lead, chaos ensues, 
And unfortunately, we've had 12 years of no U.S. leadership, and we're on the verge of another six, of a total of 16, unfortunately. So, Max, just to wrap our segment a little bit, I, I want to talk about one of those second-order chaos consequences of these two conflicts. So the conflicts caused a surge of migrants in Europe, which has partially fueled the rise of nationalists across the continent. So how can we mitigate the human cost of these conflicts without upending the countries trying to help? Well, I mean, just briefly on what Jamil said, I share aspects of the criticism, right? I mean, I think that in in Libya, the the sort of original original sin, if you will, was that it was always meant to be a European led intervention. Um, you know, the feeling was that because of the catastrophic mistake of invading and occupying Iraq, uh, that the U.S. was overburdened and we needed our other partners to step up on this one. And the Europeans really didn't. And yes, after that, I think that the U.S. really just focused on a laser-like counterterrorism focus, you know, ISIS and other terrorist groups in Libya, securing some of the man pads that were circulated in that conflict, doing some important things, but not really taking on the stabilization of the country at large when the Europeans just sort of washed their hands of it. So I, I actually take that criticism. And I think in Syria, that's a very long debate. My personal view, and there are people on, you know, there are people who feel we did too much by supporting the rebels, but not enough for them to win, thereby prolonging it. There are people who, obviously, many people who feel we did too little. Um, You know, I do think that there was a middle ground where after the chemical weapons attack, if we had hit Assad's air force and airfields, we might have been able to move the conflict towards the sort of stasis, which allows hopefully for some de-escalation where we are now, but minus five years of suffering or six years of of suffering. I think that's possible, but it's a counterfactual. And there are really smart people of good faith who, who feel very strongly that, that that's wrong. So, you know, I, I would have a note of humility and just sort of assert that it's not all black and white. And it's not like the U.S. doesn't have decisive influence on all of these issues. Um, Grant, to your question, <laughs> it's really it's a very difficult it's a very difficult one. I mean, I think that 2015-16, the refugee crisis was a profound challenge to the project of European unity. And it was linked to you know, our, our collective inability to stabilize Syria and our, our collective in Europe's willingness to just sort of externalize this problem to Turkey. Um, now, the, that right-wing populist wave has, has maybe subsided somewhat. I don't think it's going away in the long term. Um, it's just a reality of, of a Europe that is demographically changing and, um, you know, and globalization and other factors playing into it. But right now, what can be done? I mean, I think that Europe needs to extend the funding for the refugees in Turkey as a, as a minimum. The facility for refugees in Turkey is, is crucial, needs to be extended. It pays for education and integration efforts and all of these really important things that will prevent the Syrians in Turkey from being a you know, permanent underclass uh, and breeding instability. But then on the Syrian side of the border in these Turkish controlled zones, it's a really, really messy situation where Turkey has, again, de facto authority over millions of Syrians, is, is building schools, hospitals, hooking up the utilities to the Turkish system. It, no evidence that Turkey is leaving these areas anytime soon. Now, they rely on the Syrian National Army, as it's called, but really a pretty messy group of proxies, some of whom are extremely radical and are credibly accused of human rights abuses uh, on numerous occasions. They rely on them to control it. And I think that that's a recipe for chaos and uh, suffering long term. The international community can't just write a blank check to Turkey for these areas, you know, and sign off on effective annexation of northern Syria, um, especially when they've displaced million, you know, hundreds of thousands of Kurds in the process. But equally, we don't want to see these places become long-term, just mis- you know, miserable exporters of instability and suffering. 
And so there has to be a very delicate, I think, uh, strategy of conditional engagement, whereby we say to Turkey, okay, we're willing to to help with the humanitarian support in these areas, perhaps do some stabilization activities, but only if you do X, Y, Z in terms of permitting humanitarian access, free and fair, in terms of permitting some, uh, you know, human rights monitors to make sure these abuses stop. And also in terms of proxy management, potentially disarming some of these more extreme groups and rolling the ones that are palatable into a, a proper security apparatus. That's, that's a really messy process. It's going to take years. It's going to require really close U.S.-European coordination, uh, something which I will just you know, add was completely absent for the last four years. And at least now we have, we have some interest in doing that from both Washington and Brussels and, and Paris and other places. So it's a really difficult one. Um, and I don't think that addresses the, the core of your question, which is what, what's happening in Europe on the right wing and what that means for the, the EU and that project of European unity. That one, the US, I think, is, uh, is limited in its ability to shape it. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, let's turn to our final segment, which is stuff we're following the news. I'll go first. This week, I'm following the conversation about a global minimum tax. The goal of a global minimum tax is to prevent the world's largest companies from booking profits in tax havens like the Cayman Islands, Luxembourg, and Ireland. Uh, this practice has allowed companies like Amazon and Nike to not pay any corporate taxes in the United States and elsewhere. The Biden administration's proposal of a 21% GMT is significant significantly higher than what has been under consideration by the OECD, but is a welcome change from President Trump's position of imposing sanctions on countries who dare tax American companies. As finance becomes even more central to foreign policy, this discussion is worth keeping an eye on. Jody, what are you following this week? Before I get to what I'm following, I, I just want to say one thing uh, about Jamil's last comment. I don't want to get into like too much detail, but I just want to be cautious or thoughtful about the over-militarization of U.S. foreign policy. Like, it is a tool. It is far from our only tool, and it is a blunt one, right? Like, it comes always with humanitarian uh, humanitarian consequences and doesn't always leave people on the ground feeling as good about the United States as you might as you might want them to. But so here's what I'm here's what I'm following. There is a plague of mice uh, that has literally invaded Australia. Australia. So like there had been a drought for many years, and the mice have been kept at bay. And with the end of the drought, uh, they've actually started swarming, literally swarming throughout farms, homes, hospitals uh, in eastern uh, Australia. Literally millions uh, of mice. Um, it's apparently a natural uh, occurrence uh, that happens every, every so many years. But this year, one thing that's different is that the farmers are looking to drone technology as a way to control the mice by dropping poisoned bait across farmland to kill the mice, which actually apparently will have less consequences for the yield of crops. I don't know if you want to buy those crops, but like the consequences for the crop yield will be less if you use a drone rather than if they like kind of drove across the drove across the field uh, dropping uh, poisoned bait. And I've asked uh, I've asked Grant to drop into uh, into our chat a couple of really extraordinary videos. If you're screaming about mice, don't watch them, but they're pretty extraordinary. I'm excited to see what we can learn from Australia to deal with brood X of the cicadas that are currently coming up from the ground here in the DC metro. Les, what are you following this week? So I'm following the Chinese space program. China has launched the first module of its space station uh, into orbit around Earth. 
China also has a probe orbiting Mars and is plan planning on sending a lander down in the next few days. They're making very significant strides in their space program. They're not quite where we are yet, uh, but I hope this produces uh, some very constructive competition and the U.S. and other uh, Western-oriented countries respond vigorously. Max, what are you following this week? Well, I hate to fit my my archetype as a turkey nerd, but I am following. There are a bunch of really big uh, Turkish-related energy decisions uh, coming over the next year, but but particularly in the next few months. Um, you know, Turkey's reliance on Russian energy has always been a source of tension and something that the U.S. understood, but that played a big role in this perceived shift of Turkey from from the Western sort of architecture. And but interestingly, last year with the collapse in energy prices, Turkey actually reduced its its reliance on Russian gas significantly, uh, cutting their purchases about forty percent. They found this big gas field in the Black Sea, the Sakarya field. And one of the choices they face is who, if anyone, they're going to partner with internationally to exploit it. They say they're going to do it themselves, but their their sort of state company, TPAO, has never done anything remotely like this. And it's a very deep find, very technically difficult. So I think that while Turkey generally goes by commercial concerns in the energy space, uh, reasonably, this could have some hints of their strategic view and how they're they're seeing things between the U.S. and Russia uh, moving forward. Jamil, what are you following this week? Uh, thanks, Grant. And thanks to everybody for uh, being part of this today. Um, I have uh, some sad news to pass along uh, to the NSI community. Uh, Courtney Hall, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, an NSI visiting fellow, um, has passed um, at the age of 52 of natural causes. Uh, Courtney was the managing director of Hillcrest Venture Partners, a venture capital firm, and the founder of Exact Sports, a sports assessment uh, recruiting company. Um, he was a former NFL player, having played eight years with San Diego Chargers, making the Pro Bowl four times, serving as team captain five times, including for the Chargers' 1994 Super Bowl team. He's a graduate of Rice University, a law degree, and an MBA from the University of Chicago, where he was my host almost two decades ago when I was an incoming law student. Courtney is one of the kindest, uh, sweetest, smartest, most hardworking people you'll ever meet. Um, he is a family man. Um, he's deeply mourned by all of us, uh, but perhaps none more than the family he leaves behind, including his wife, uh, Judge LaShawn Darcy Hall, and his four children. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at MasonMatSec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Les Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.